Celebrating, and uh, one one phrase that comes to mind in, uh, in why why we should rejoice, why we should be grateful, a sense of gratitude is this phrase that Tathagata has come into the world. Tathagata is someone who's sort of has gone beyond, if you like. And it just actually comes into this world with its devas and brahmins and recluses and princes and ordinary people. And then the, the Buddha, the Tathagata is the Buddha, the awakened one, and spends all, all his life from that until his last breath. He is lying on his deathbed under the trees. And he's saying, is anyone who's not clear about what I'm teaching, <laughs> please come forward. And if, if you're too embarrassed or shy, then ask somebody else to come forward. Don't, I've only got a few moments left you know, to be able to speak, so please don't waste the opportunity. If you have anything you want to know, please ask. Now is the time. So, um, you know, it's certainly gave everything he had. Um, and had an enormous amount to give. Uh, there's also someone who had the uh, kind of wisdom to say, you know, that that after he had gone, the teachings and the training would be would stand in his place for many many years. He said eventually this will too will decline. So a sense also of a kind of. Uh, you know, sanity or a modesty, even of someone of such attainments, to say, well, you know, I'm not going to last forever, and what's more important than, than me is what is the is the teachings and the training, and even that won't last forever. You know, that too will subside. So don't waste the opportunity. Mm-hmm. But also, he said that he wouldn't pass into into the great release, the Parinibbana, until he had established what's called the fourfold assembly, which is the monks, the nuns, the laymen and the lay women. He said, this is what you need. You need the fourfold, the four branches to really feel you've covered it all. He said, once this is done, then I feel confident that things are set up properly and I can pass away without any feeling of, of of lack, you know, I've done everything that possibly could be to set up something that will last and keep this thing going for the welfare of people for many, many generations. So the fourfold, the monks, the nuns, laymen, they lay women. So that kind of just about covers the human <laughs> potential. <laughs> you know, you're in there somewhere. 
And so it's nice to consider the kind of the spread and the Buddha's feeling. It wasn't just, you know, as a great uh, avatar or guru, someone of, you know, who was unique and, and that you kind of remember his teachings, but also you set something up. It's got that kind of pragmatic wisdom. So you set something up that pertains through time. And this is some, so this very kind of, um, you know, pragmatic approach to, to seeing what really works over a period of time, realizing things are going to change in time, things are, different cultures will arise and pass. Say, so, well, you know, if you, you can kind of um, create new standards in line with what I've set up for situations I haven't envisaged. So it's a sense of flexibility um, there and a, and a quality of, of widespread. This seemed to be a real feeling for it from someone who was a solitary recluse, you know, enlightened by himself, someone who realized enlightenment by himself alone at night under a tree this incredible aloneness of it all, of his moment of realization, yet in that quality of aloneness, he realizes something that then he says you can actually unfold it and open it and spread it to becoming much more than just an inward mystical experience by one person into becoming something like a culture, a way of life for many people throughout time who can live it and integrate it and develop their lives in accordance with it. So it's something that actually unfolds into a very wide and um, manifold, um, many-faceted kind of presentation and possibilities. For this, I think we should feel awed that uh, this is possible and that someone actually had the vision and the capacities to, to bring that around. There's a kind of, uh, as Anagarika Paul's, um, you know, recital this traditional request where the, the Buddha, first of all, after his awakening, he thought, wow, this is... Because he saw in his vision, he saw this huge, uh, had this huge vision of previous lives, up to 100,000 previous lives, you know, and then recognized how each of us take ourselves as a unique person for one lifetime, and where we come from, we go to, we don't know. And yet he could see that this one lifetime is just like one wave in an ocean. We're actually, we're an ocean, not, not a wave. <laughs> this little wave with these eyes and this hair and this particular voice is just one little ripple in this great you know, ongoing process. That takes that that I become in this this lifetime, this particular form, then it becomes somebody else in another lifetime. That's a vast vision, and then he also saw his second great vision, seeing the ethical quality of the current that moves beings. How if we act in, if we kill or steal or lie or commit adultery or take intoxicants have wrong views and corrupt minds and you go to, in certain directions, you know, unpleasant, unfortunate directions where your potential shrivels and you become more twisted and dark 
if you go in another direction, generosity and patience and loving kindness and clarity, then you go in another direction, you know, towards brightness and towards vastness. You could see this. And then you began to see also the underlying currents underneath those currents, which is biases towards being something, having something, and the limitations of our, of our, way, of our minds, ignorance, the, the minds are very fettered by views, opinions, assumptions, by just not really having that much penetration into reality. We just kind of skim along the surface of it, taking it for granted. So it's tremendous kind of biases that the human beings are under. And you could see this and you think, wow, you know, is anybody going to get this lot? <laughs> so he, he took some time just, just, you know, taking in the feeling of that. And then this, uh, you know, well, I, I can't see how I could possibly teach anybody this. Then the, the um, Brahma Sahambhati is a kind of a divine uh, spirit in the universe arises and then he begs the Buddha on one bended knee, please, uh, there are those with a little dust in their eyes, teach the Dhamma out of sympathy for them. Out of, And the word, interesting, someone's called out of compassion, but actually the word anukampimang is very, uh, it means to tremble, to tremble along with. Kampati means to tremble, and anu means together. In other words, when somebody else is hurt, you feel it. When somebody else is enjoying, you feel it. When somebody else is in, under pressure, you feel it. When somebody else is, is happy, you feel it. You get this, this resonance. And he said, because of Brahma Samhati, because of this, he said, because you feel this, therefore you must. Because how can you be around on this, this plane, on this planet, with a mind that actually feels like that? You can feel other people's sorrow and pain and aspirations and not do something about it. You know, not somehow, whether it, one person hears it, you spend 45 years and one person hears it, that's good enough. <laughs> Even if nobody hears it, at least you tried. Because you have to live out the, the human, human mind, you know, which despite all these uh, difficulties, we are basically, we are empathic beings. We hear. Amazing enough, we speak and we hear. And we get something, and we go, wow, it's interesting, or something in this happens. You know? And we feel things, and we feel joy, and we feel sorrow, and uh, we feel sad when other people are sad, and we see people suffer, and we feel some distress with that. We see people happy, and we feel pleased with that. Nothing really that unusual. This is what we're, we are living within, this is what the Buddha lives within, you know, as a human being within that. Therefore, even this vast vision and this vast potential has to come, comes into the, this world through this human channel, which is a feeling channel, which is an empathic channel, which is a sense of um, a conscience and concern, empathy channel. This is what it comes through, this great, great vast vision and vast potential. It rises in the world through this particular thing, not as a <laughs> God, not as a deva, not as a, as a disembodied spirit, but as a human being. You know? And so the Buddha's teaching actually is really for human beings because it's about feeling and it's about um, the, the 
dilemmas of feeling, the dilemmas of empathy, which are we sense we sense suffering, we don't want it. We sense other people's sadness, and we feel we sh- we feel concerned about that. We feel joy, and we want to increase it and spread it, you know, and have more of that, and and so forth. So. This is the kind of, this is called dukkha, I mean, a sense of irresolute quality in our life. Even when we're happy, there's a sense of, well, I wish I could do that, make somebody else happy, <laughs> or have it longer, go on for longer. Mm-hmm. What about, you know, we can feel good in ourselves, and you hear the news, and the terrible things happening in other parts of the world, and you, you know, you feel stirred by that. Yeah. And it's, so it's that's what happens, isn't it? So in this world, and, and the Buddha's teaching is of this world, in this world, and it covers this world with its the fourfold assembly and a training and a teaching. Deals with things like ethics and uh, behaviour and uh, how to focus and strengthen the mind's awareness and how to reflect and bring that strength and awareness into into looking at things as they actually are, not just into enjoying itself. So it's not a, it's not a dropout kind of um, mysticism, whereby you, you know, people sometimes think you, you can stare at your navel all day. If you ever tried it, you get a terrible neck ache. <laughs> and it's not really that illuminating either. <laughs> So it's not going to some kind of netherworld, it's actually something whereby the strengtheness and the lucidity of awareness is then brought to spread over this very predicament of what we call the world. You know, what in the Buddhist sense, the world is both internal and external. So we have a consciousness, the consciousness we have internalizes the world. So you see something, you hear something, and it goes in. And you remember it. You know, and you think about it, and you fear it, and you rejoice in it, and you interpret it, and you distort it. That kind of, that, what's outside goes in, isn't it? And then what's inside goes out. If you're frightened, you feel angry, it goes out. You feel exuberant, it goes out. And it, it very much affects what you see and hear and how you behave. So the world is really an internal, external experience. It's continued those two sides of it are continually working with each other and changing each other and affecting each other. You see, in this very dynamic experience of world. So the way that the, the Buddha taught us to get a, get a hold of it, because it is changing its forms and colors and dimensions and how when it's really deeply personal or seemingly abstract, whether it's about me or you or big pictures or history or geography or politics or whatever, you see, there's certain particular patterns you can you can really notice in that, the ones that that really get you. <laughs> That's what you have to know about it. The way ones where you get uh, you get stuck or you get caught. So one, there's a kind of list list of these. Buddhism is good on lists. 
of things. This is one of the easier lists. There's only eight of these <laughs> in this list. You know, what they call, they're called the worldly dumbers, which mean, if you like, the, the snagging bits that, make, that stick the world into us. There's, uh, they're in pairs, and you have the first pair is, is gain and loss, meaning you, you make a lot, and you go up. Suddenly, you know, you're rich or wealthy, big time, you swell, and you go up. And then crash, you lose, and you go down. <laughs> so you get stuck on either of those. You gain, you, get, you think you're on top of the world and everything, and so forth. You get stuck in gain, you get stuck in loss. You get, uh, then there's um, fame, getting lots of attention. Everything you're wonderful, center of attention. You get stuck in that, inflate, there's big shot, and then there's getting no attention. Has been, you know, whatever it was, yesterday's rock star, so on. Who's he? Oh, I've forgotten. He was around in the... <laughs> you know, there you were, kind of Freddie Fabulous in 1960, now you're just, you know, out of work. Tramp. Nobody loves a rock star when they're 70. Except maybe Mick Jagger. He must be getting that way by now. <laughs> Still chucking it around. <laughs> but there's a kind of uh, terrible des- fate in having to be a 70-year-old rock star pretending you're still 25 and sexy, isn't it? You know, who want to be? Who want to be the centre of attention? You know, so so though we something kind of fancies the idea of maybe of being out there in the limelight, you know, uh, that would be better than not than being ignored. <laughs> would you want to live in the limelight all the time and have the paparazzi chasing you around and people snooping through your dustbin to look at your letters and <laughs> writing, writing you know, stories about you and speculating about your sexual behaviour or your diet or something like that. Oh no. It's hell, isn't it? And then there's ignominy, just kind of being completely nobody knows you at all. I'm reading a story, a very sad story of a woman and her, her, I think it was either a job or a vocation, she just went to the funerals of people who died, who'd been so forgotten, they didn't even have anybody go to their funeral. So she thought what she would do, she'd go to the, their funerals. There's so many thousands of people just in London dying who were so forgotten, nobody even, you know, they didn't, nobody even missed them. <laughs> You know, that's, that's the bottom. Nobody even knows you're gone, you know, just somebody, about a week after you've died, the postman notices a smell coming through the door or something. That's the only way they find out you've gone. And they know, no parents, no friends, no nobody. You know. So that's pretty wretched too, isn't it? So who wants to be either in either of those or even lesser lesser tendencies of that get you catch you you get a lot of praise and attention and promotion and all that and you know, then it you lose it it's like uh, somebody was saying the other day you know you get the 
World Cup or big cup final and you're raring for your team to win. Once they've won, there's this kind of euphoria for about three days, everybody's getting smashed. And then all you can do is lose. <laughs> you can't, you know, you've got the cup, so you don't, you can't have a two cups, you know. <laughs> you either lose or with a bit of luck you may win it again next year. But in other words, it's completely empty. And yet so much, all you can do is feel sad at the end of it because you've, like, you've lost it or you feel frightened you might lose it. That's how far it goes. Um, you know, fame. And yet, who wants the other? Just to be somebody don't, nobody even knows you've died. <laughs> Except maybe you. <laughs> uh, and the praise and blame. These are another pair. And these are more daily things that happen to us. Uh, praise and blame. Now we, you know, want one and we fear the other. It, once you've been praised, it's kind of blissful suffusion, maybe, and then, <laughs> and then somebody says, "Yeah, but," <laughs> or you've got to live up to it, you know. You get kind of, you get praised. You know, there's a suffering in that, stress in that, because somebody says you, you know, you're wonderful or intelligent or courageous or loving then you've actually got you've made a benchmark you've got to keep up to and if you you slip from that it's you know you know you're not so good anymore <laughs> yeah. or people get jealous of it so praise blame and uh, and how these can switch can't they remember when i was in in thailand there's Lumpur Cha who's very good at kind of playing the numbers on these, th- doing numbers on people in these, in these areas, particularly praise and blame. So in the morning you get praised, and in the evening you get blamed. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Ajahn Jayasara was saying, you know, he was, uh, when he was looking after Lumpur Cha, and Ajahn Jayasara was still a young monk, so he was his attendant, and he was learning to speak Lao. You see, so Ajahn Chah was saying, oh, this, this Farang, he can really, he's really good. He, he can speak loud just like a native, you know. He can understand everything it's saying. So Jayasara's kind of be lifted up and chuffed up by that. And in the evening, Ajahn Chah, because he, he got these false teeth, and he'd taken his teeth out. So he's got, you know, you can imagine someone speaking loud with no teeth in their head. So Jayasara couldn't understand him. And he said, oh, it's idiot Western, I don't know a damn thing, idiot's complete. <laughs> <laughs> so up, down, up, down, up, down. <laughs> and you think, oh, rotten. And yet the, the point is that in this you, you realise, don't get, don't get hooked. Because <laughs> you hang on to praise, then you suffer when it goes. You hang on to blame, you know. And pleasure and pain. You know, the things we all experience, just the very more fundamental, even more intimate, every moment, really. Pleasant, painful. Pleasant, painful. This is what it's to be as a human being. Pleasant, painful. Not just physical. Emotional, psychological. You know, it's multidimensional. It's not like being an amoeba. 
who experience pleasure and pain, but they don't worry about other people, other amoebas. They don't worry about the future of amoebas. They don't worry about whether amoeba, amoebas have a destiny or not. Um, <laughs> and yet we can experience degrees of psychological pain. What's the purpose of the human race? Is it really going anywhere? Pain over how other people are getting on or not getting on. Psychological pain, emotional pain for ourselves, for others, and physical pain. So there's different levels of it, pleasure, pain, pleasure, coming in all the time. You're having a good time, you look around and see someone's not having a good time. Oh dear. You know, distress. You maybe feel guilty that you feel happy because she's not looking so happy. So this goes on, these kind of things. So even you get pleasure, which is what we'd imagine we most like, it's still, when you look at it, it's really unsatisfactory because once you've got it, then you're going to lose it. (laughs) Or you wonder what to do with it, or you still meet displeasure on another level. Mm -hmm. So quite a lot of the the teaching is is covering the world, both in its manifest outward form, and then if you like, its psychological biases, how things hit us and throw us around. And really, in a way, everything leads back to this place of non-attachment. If there was no escape from the world, then it would be an unkindness to keep pointing things out, these things out. But the Buddha says, because there is a release from the world, within the world there is a release from the world. For those people who are born into this world, there is a release from it, which is not an annihilation of it or a denial of it, but a release from it through not attaching to these pendulum swings that, that run through it. In a way, this uh, is crystallizes in the med- meditation experience, whereby meditation you know, can be, sometimes you can kind of simplify that as just holding this, this space, holding this awareness, and with, through which things seem to pass. You're aware of thoughts, you're aware of emotions, you're aware of Thoughts about the future, memories of the past, uh, problems, anxieties about yourself, anxieties about others. You can be aware of those. And if you begin to not just be aware of those, but also to really almost like shift your emphasis to the awareness of those rather than to the topics themselves, you find, oh yeah, actually that unpleasant thought Come, changes, comes and goes and changes and y- yeah, I'm, actually I'm alright with that in some way I, I mean, I don't like it but part of me is really alright with that and part of me can actually know that that comes and goes and I'm not that and as the more you develop that the more you kind of emphasise that the kind of shift of emphasis to the knowing of the topic uh, so that the, the, you're not actually denying these topics exist, but in a way you're, no, you're not getting buried by them. You're kind of handling them. 
letting them touch you. And the more you can do that, the more you get a kind of a, a fearlessness, even a kind of willingness to be touched by experience, because you begin to see, actually, the more you do that, the more you lose your fear, the more you lose your timidity, the more you lose your confusion about these experiences, the freer you get, actually, think, okay, you know, give me some blame, will you? <laughs> so I want to see what happens. <laughs> think, oh, yeah. Right. And you feel a little nerve ending start to move around. And then you just, oh, okay. And then it passes. And, uh, you know, then in a way the, the touch of the world is, a, is a, something which keeps encouraging you and reminding you of this unalterable realm, dimension, you know, these are all kind of just grasping for words really, but this this sense in which we can experience, you and I can experience that to some degree. We have a sense in which, yeah, that in some ways, memory of who I was is just a memory, the future of what I will be is just a thought, you know, thoughts and moods and feelings come and go, they, they run around, sensations come and go, and somehow you know, there, there's an awareness of that which is not about, which doesn't move in time. It doesn't have a time. Time moves through it. Identities move through it. It doesn't have an identity. It's not male, female, nationality. You know, it doesn't have a particular flavor. It doesn't have a mood. It doesn't have a standpoint. It doesn't believe in anything. It doesn't deny anything. It just... Mm-hmm. And things things can kind of come and go, and whenever, and you become very more much more aware when you when you see the passing of something. Something passes, you you can feel that almost a disengagement of a sensation, or a mood, or and in that disengagement of it, oh, that's not mine. that's often where you you really get it you have a powerful feeling this shouldn't happen, how dare they, this is wrong it shouldn't be this way, it shouldn't be this way it is this way (laughs) it shouldn't, but no, I don't really, I don't want it can't, it mustn't, it can't it it just did Uh, it can't, and I can't bear this and I don't, I don't uh, (laughs) the thing kind of whirs to a halt Oh, <laughs> that was that, wasn't it? You know, you know. So that as that develops, you can get these kind of tornadoes of passions and convictions r- rise up and pass, pass. And as you feel them passing, you kind of, oh, yeah, there it was. It's not to say it wasn't passionate, it wasn't powerful, and so on, but. It has its nature to it, and just staying steady with it, where you don't kind of uh, um, contract either in worrying, fear, hatred, fascination with the topic. You just stay open to it and let it pass through. You, you something starts to the shift towards awareness grows and grows every time that that occurs. So obviously there are meditation techniques which very much heighten or you know 
bring that process to the boil, if you like, cook it, where you really put emphasis on, on focusing um, on particular body, mental experiences. So you're really, you know, force feeding it, causing it to grow strong meditation techniques. There's meditation process as well, which means in the course of doing these techniques, bits of your psychology start to roll into the picture. Things you didn't even necessarily think were anything to do with Buddhism or meditation <laughs> come rolling through. And, oh, not this one, oh dear. And then, you know, boom, there it comes through. And uh, it's like a, a process where all your stuff goes through the, through the mincer or through the processor. And things you didn't even know about yourself. And that's really the, the integral approach. So we can, you know, the meditation technique, you can have these, you know, intensive sessions or intensive practices which, like, you know, like a laser beam, if you like, you really point and focus and that's wonderful. But then you also get something that's more diffuse. Rather than the laser beam, it's the light of day, which is our daily life rolling on. And the two complement each other. Because if you don't do the meditation technique, the chances are that the overall vigor, strength, uh, clarity, empathy, aliveness of your awareness doesn't you know, get up to, to managing daily life stuff. You just ca- get caught in it. But again, if you only do the meditation techniques and you think that's it, that's the beginning and end of the process, then all kinds of stuff that you really need to, to look at don't, don't get into the focus. Because meditation techniques are deliberately limited focus, aren't they? You know, you know you're focusing on the breath, the body, and it's you, you're definitely doing it. Whereas quite a bit of daily life is just what's, not what I'm doing, but what's done to me. Um, where I'm not really even necessarily in charge of the focus. Suddenly, you know, it's a job or it's a street or it's other people and things just come wanging through. So, but all of that somehow affects me. So it needs to be understood and brought within the scope of what it is to awaken. Because awakening is not just uh, uh, one point, it does have this kind of vastness of the vision of the Buddha, where the Buddha may have seen 100,000 lifetimes. Well, you know, you're just taking on the results and causes of just one lifetime. It's pretty, pretty big option as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> you know, when you kind of think of the residues and the habits and the attitudes and the assumptions and the little kind of grudges and fears and uh, illicit passions and so forth that have gone in one, one lifetime, you know, you know, just bringing those worms out of the can is, is enough. <laughs> Most of us. <laughs> and this is really what happens in the process of awakening. Meditation is a process. And the real challenge is, can you stay open to this? This is not on the script. This is not in the technique. This is not in the book. Can you stay open to, to this, you know, to this, um, these moods and feelings and uh, so forth, the whole lot of it.
to the, our you know, self-consciousness, our fearfulness, or our vanity, our wanting praise, our sense of wanting to be loved and known and, and so forth, which we were supposed not to have. <laughs> our despair, when we can't do it anymore, we can't meditate anymore. We don't feel where meditation is going in a stuck sense of feeling a failure. When surely by now, with all these teachings and so forth, you shouldn't have to experience that. You should just have it all sorted out in a book. No more doubt. When you get to this point, turn left, turn right, slow down, and so forth. And you get to these places where you don't know what to do. You just feel stuck and hopeless. Okay, can you stay with that? Or, you know... Or do we end up kind of snagging and, and that and getting trapped in it? So it's always just be able to, you know, recognize whatever arises in the world, internally or externally, you know, the, the fundamental tran- transformation point is that ability to have full open awareness that doesn't hold on, doesn't push away. That's, that's the thing that empties. It doesn't, mean, it doesn't deny or annihilate, but it, it loosens the, the hook of clinging, of identification, which is the Buddha's, this is all the Buddha's teaching. He's saying, I just teach you the end of sorrow, suffering, stress. This is the bit I'm teaching you. Whether you do this on some kind of very refined, mystical plane, or you're just doing it on an unrefined, non-mystical plane, from the top to the bottom, from the gross to the s- sublime, this is what I'm teaching. <laughs> you know, so you're in there somewhere. You don't have to be at the highest or the lowest. Uh, you can suffer being a kind of, you know, well-fed middle-class housewife or stockbroker. Your suffering is just as good as somebody else's <laughs> suffering who's, you know, beaten up, raped, starving in the third world. You know, it's still of the, in the same category, you shouldn't feel your suffering is somehow not worthy of <laughs> notice. <laughs> yeah. This is kind of covering the whole thing. And when you look at these, these triggers, these very important triggers, um, gain, loss, fame, ignominy, praise, blame, pleasure, pain. You see, what, what do they all have in common? What, is the, what, is the, what does that hooking do? You take any one of them and just contemplate really what, what simply it means. You know, very simply. You see yourself, you, whether you like it or not, or embarrassed by it or not, you know, the, the, what we call the positive ones make you feel bigger, make you feel richer, more confident, more, more full, full on, more lit up. We light up with praise. We may immediately kind of feel anxious and embarrassed about it and don't want it, but that's what kind of happens to the system You're on a simple empathic level. With pleasure, you know, you kind of, however much you kind of feel it and then try to shut it down again, you still feel that. And with the others, you contract, you blame, you kind of, no, loss, Shame, you kind of everything in you contracts. You feel this. This is it, isn't it? The contraction or the inflation. 
and in that we lose balance and that sense of just the main t- of a steady open space is lost because of the either the space blows out into a kind of inflation or it contracts so it, when it blows out you get giddy and lose lose the sense of of stability when it contracts you get frozen you lose the sense of openness mm. So any of those kind of, that's how it affects us, isn't it? And then we have all kinds of effects about that, like you can, you can have kind of psychological things on top of that, like you want to be blamed because you, you, you want to show people you don't care. <laughs> so then, but it's still essentially, you, you know, you develop a hardness because you contract. So you develop a kind of hardness around that contraction. And in those positions, you see the fixity of that is what establishes the sense of, of self. That's why there's, they are so, any position is, is tricky because it attracts that in us which wants to have a particular footprint, dimension, status, stability. I am this, you know. So something where, which is of that nature attracts us and with its feeling. So there's a grasping at it. Whereas something that's just kind of open, steady awareness, it doesn't, it's not, you can't really grasp that. You can have it as an idea, but you can't exactly grasp it because it doesn't actually have a shape at all. It's neither big nor small. It's it's as big as what you put in it, really. It's as small as you as your refinement of focus. It's as big as you how far you spread it. it has no particular dimension at all. Mm. You know, you can at that moment you can think of your entire life, or you could focus on the you know tickling sensation in your fingertips. You know, you could. Try to remember, you know, the last note of, of Beethoven's Moonlight Sonata and just hold that in your mind. Or you could have it to contemplate, you know, the sound of the ocean. It could be big or small. It could be profound. It could be anything. And yet, all the same, to any form that arises, small or great, coarse or refined, is, with, is passes through that awareness, which is no boundary, no dimension, no state, no neither coming nor going, neither established nor fluid. You can't define it except you can experience when you, how everything that you can define passes, changes, moves. So it's, it's uh, ungraspable. You can't make a self out of it, an identity out of it. It's humbling. So that bias as I was talking about these fundamental biases, the bias towards being something. So I mentioned in the third vision of the Buddha's had the bias towards sensuality, sense contact, the bias towards being something. These very fundamental ways in which our consciousness moves. Isn't it? it moves towards what's happening, sense world, what's happening, and then who am I? How am I with that? That's what it does. Yeah. So it wants to say, you are this, you know, 
right now it's fixed. Yeah. Now that awareness is the ending of that. You, you can't become it. <laughs> it doesn't operate like that. But consciousness does. So sometimes this process of awakening is called the ending of consciousness. doesn't mean you're unconscious or in some half-dead state. It means that that consciousness process, which is biased towards becoming and sensuality, can't, can't get this. You, know, you can't define it in any way. But you can be aware from that of how the tendency to want to be something or be nothing, be big, be small, be known, be not known, be liked by somebody, be liked, by, liked a lot by somebody, and so on. Whatever you want to make of yourself at all, that experience comes, it rises, it catches. If you acknowledge it, honestly, openly, clearly, with, then it, it unhooks. And that's our, that's our process. If we are willing to, to keep doing that, if we're willing and capable of doing that, because uh, many things that, that come into our focus are things that actually I feel sometimes a bit embarrassed by, really. I don't really want to be fully aware of them. <laughs> you know? And, or something I think not worth being aware of. It's stupid. I know better than that. Don't be so daft. You know, that kind of dismiss it. But, no. You know, kind of petty minded attitudes or little kind of jealous snipings. Oh, come on. No. I don't want to be aware of that. Or fears. You know, little silly fears, you know. Fears of, of, of uh, not being good enough or, you know, like your little childish fears. Fears of company, fears of being moved, fears of making a fool of yourself, things like that. that you think, you're a big strong man, you should be bigger than that. But big strong man is not, not what you are either. <laughs> or even little weedy man isn't what you are. So, you know, you tend to have... Any kind of thing you hang on to as an identity always always limits your ability to be aware. You know? So, you know, I don't know how it is for other people. Most of us don't want to see the 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 ugly, the silly, the spiteful, the depraved, <laughs> <laughs> the proud, <laughs> the resentful aspects of our minds. You know. Particularly practicing all these years there shouldn't be any. But the point is, in practicing all these years, it means more and more stuff gets dredged from the bottom of the barrel. <laughs> you know, this isn't necessarily things you're actually deliberately concocting, but it's stuff that just get dredged up from the bottom of the barrel, saying, you, you know, you've got to clean this one out too. Because on an ideal level, I've already finished with it. I don't want any of that, that's wrong, silly. You know, on an ideal, idealistic level, my mental level, no, not me. <laughs> I've read the books, I, you know, I'm convinced. <laughs> but intellectual conviction is only a part of the process. <laughs> it's an important part of the process, but it only, it's only the start of it, and then there's the rest of it is the, is the in-depth 
you know, having things drawn up. And the Buddha was also saying, well, you know, this isn't just something you do in meditation. You can say, you also have relative references, you know, relative things that you can start to put in place. So not everything is just thrown into that place of, you know, you've got to do this just with awareness itself. Because for a lot of us, sometimes awareness just isn't strong enough. It hasn't really grown that far yet. So you also have, if you like, the Buddha gave very deep, profound, ultimate teachings, also relative teachings, things that help, help to lessen the impact or give us a bit of breathing space until we've grown up. So he said, obviously, something like, um, you know, gains and losses, the best thing to do is really cultivate simplicity of needs. You know, when you keep your standards low, your simplicity of needs, you don't get caught with gains and losses. So this is renunciation, but renunciation may sound a very heavier ultimate term, but just really knowing, I don't need that, you know. Um, it can come, but I don't, actually, I don't actually set my standard on having that high a kind of lifestyle. That's a really, that's not trying to prove how much of an ascetic you are, that's just sanity. Because <laughs> yeah, if you can do that, if you can say, you know, I'm bigger than this, I don't need to prove myself by having, you know, five of these and a big flash car or whatever. I don't need that if I get it so what I don't need it then you're really already you know loosening the power of the gain loss hook and you're saying you're finding your value is coming from other places like good friends yeah. uh, I'm, I'm content with myself I don't have regret about my actions uh, yeah so, therefore, this other stuff, I don't need these highs. I don't need it. You know? And that's really great, isn't it? When we can do that. So it's really worth considering. You know. Certainly, in my own life, I actually find I always have by and large, more than I more than I really need. You know, and living a life where uh, there's a tremendous amount of generosity and kindness and sharing, and actually, I've more than I really need. You know. So, and the sense of need diminishes the more that you cultivate your inner strengths. Same with, with, with fame and ignominy, whether you get lots of attention or no attention at all. And really the thing to, to helps with that is the sense of, of um, confidence in your own mind.
sense of um, trust and confidence in your own, your own mind, your own purity, your own truthfulness, then you don't really need the light to be shone from outside. You have the light shining within, within you. Whether anybody else sees it or not, that's up to them. <laughs> but you see, why, why do we actually, why, is it, why do we need attention? You know, because somehow there's a lack of confidence, a lack of fullness, a lack of real appreciation of ourselves. Therefore, we kind of really want other people to kind of do it for us. You know, give me some little bit of light so I can feel okay with myself. And obviously, many times people will do that. But uh, essentially, if you want to get off the hook of that, of the, the, the crunch when it's not there anymore, when you're not being given that, then you have to develop your own sense of loving kindness, appreciation, joy, really appreciating your own truth, your own truth, where you are, what you do and what you, what, you, what you refrain from doing and the good that you do, more than just intellectually, but really getting a feeling for the, the beauty that human beings have. This is, uh, so I think it becomes particularly um, pointed in, in group situations. So I suppose, I think especially in monasteries, where the tendency is for, you know, people like myself get a huge amount, proportionally more attention, you know, more fond attention, if you like, than, than other people, you know, kind of don't get much attention at all. You just or you. <laughs> Don't even know the names, you know, people in white, and so on. Of course, in Britain's a little more sort of egalitarian and on that level. But certainly, you know, if you're in a Thai, Thai monastery, it's much, very, very striking how the person at the top is, gets about 85 percent at least of the attention. Everybody else shares the 15 percent of what's left. <laughs> Turns of attention, but that's okay, because there's a sense in which um, you feel a sense of of being part of something very good, and your own truthfulness is part of that. So you you you're not actually asking for attention. You don't feel the need for it. Praise and blame. Well, it's true that sometimes we do. Um, things that we really would better not have done. So you can't just dismiss all blame as being other people being negative. <laughs> and that's their problem. But sometimes there is blame. You think, oh, you know, that you need to actually hear, and and so forth. Or there is praise that's not just adulation, but a particular facet of something you do that's that's really worth bringing to mind and and celebrating. So although praise and blame. You know, have this effect. Still, there are blameworthy and praiseworthy aspects of what we what comes through us that are worth noting. And you really want the opinion of the of a wise person to help you sift through just what's the emotional um, currents and things that are really useful for you to know. Mm. So, Kalyanamitta, spiritual friend, will say. You know, did you see that in yourself? Um, 
Did you notice that? That was really, I, was, uh, I felt that there was a lot of strength there. You seemed very strong in that place. You were very clear. You know? Oh. Oh, yeah. You don't, because sometimes you don't notice. And it's not saying you are, but that bit, that moment, or that facet. Did you see that? You know, someone who can actually point out your own strengths is uh, that's a great blessing. And someone who can also point. You, you see that bit where you suddenly went and you went quickly. Did you see what happened there? <laughs> no, 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 not me. You go, no, no, no. Just, just look. Did you see what happened? Did you see what happened to the other people you were with, and you didn't notice? And, they, and, and actually, that happens quite a lot. You do that. And, and you try to actually focus, not as a person, but you focus on a particular piece of, of stuff that you weren't really that clear about. And you didn't know how it was affecting, you didn't know where it came from. And that person can just help you to see that and bring your awareness onto that. And you kind of clear it. That's helpful, constructive, compassionate, uh, I say criticism, but, that, but pointing. And so that's, that's really a useful thing that means you're not, uh, really don't really need praise and blame, which actually confuse things. Somebody just says, you're wonderful. Well, what? <laughs> What was wonderful, my feet? Because <laughs> it doesn't do you any good, really. It just kind of gets feeling of, well, that's nice, you know, but, but I don't learn anything about that. And somebody says, well, when you pointed things out in that particular way, that really was clear for me. Think, oh, it's good, now I can use that. That's good, yeah. <coughs> Big thing, of course, is pleasure and pain, which may all these others boil down to pleasure and pain. And this is really the domain of meditation, of samadhi, of concentration practices, where you begin to really handle the very effects of pleasure and pain, emotional effects, physical effects. You see these seem to be almost almost absolute truth for us, don't they? Who doesn't want pleasure? You know, who, who enjoys pain? If you enjoy it, it's called pleasure. <laughs> you take pleasure in pain, you know, or you feel pain and embarrassed about pleasure. So you have a psychological, you know, uh, reflection on a physical state. You know? So you don't like relaxation, therefore it's, you're making psychological pain out of something that's physically pleasant. But in the end result is the bit that you're really with, that's either painful or pleasant, you know, whichever bit it is. So how do we manage these? And actually pleasure is just as difficult as pain. Emotional pleasure, when you see falling in, falling in love, being, you know, these kind of experiences when you're intoxicated with something um, is difficult because you just difficult to get perspective what's happening really to to know you know because it's so holistic it covers everything you get excited when it gets excitement or pleasure it just covers everything and and well it feels good but you 
haven't got any way of really um, reflecting on it and getting it in perspective. Pain floods the whole system. Everything you just feel is negative and contracted and affects everything. You just can't get perspective on it. So one loses the sense of uh, awareness around that. And the Buddha said, in a notable discourse, he said, well, the people who don't manage pleasure because the body isn't developed. And if you can't man- the people who can't manage pain, it's because the mind is not developed. Yeah. So the handling of pleasure is, is through, through the body. Now, words, what this means is we, when we feel sort of emotional pleasure, sensual pleasure, then what is really beneficial is you can actually feel that almost at a kind of neurological level. You can feel the flush in the body. Because when it goes into the mind, the mind proliferates, gets excited, worries, feels awkward, feels giddy, and it loses it. You could take it into the body, just feeling the pleasure of an emotion, emotional state, emotional pleasure, mental pleasure, pleasure of a pleasure of being praised, the pleasure of being loved, the pleasure of loving somebody else, and so forth. Because these are not wrong, they're inevitable. You know, pleasure is inevitable. (laughs) There's not anything wrong with it. What's wrong with it is when you can't handle it, that's all. When you get hooked on it, that's all that's wrong with it. Actually, I find pleasure more difficult than pain. You know, cause psychologically, I've got enough kind of psychological things to be able to kind of bear, be, have fortitude and so forth towards pain. You don't get fortitude around. You can't be endure pleasure. <laughs> it doesn't work. So I always feel a bit sort of, you know, uh, all at sea with 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 uh, pleasant experiences. So then I can something that can just feel a bit careful, a bit too pleasant. Don't you know? Get blown away by that. So I have that tendency, not being able to handle the pleasant. And, uh, you know, I think it was a monk's life, can't be that pleasant, surely. <laughs> <laughs> you know, sit on, you know, sleep on the floor one meal a day, no music, no, no garlands in my hair. I used to have garlands in my hair when I was a hippie. No garlands in my hair. Can't play my guitar. You know, no romance, no sex, no, so surely it can't, still have got any pleasure left, surely. <laughs> still, you can feel pleasure. Because <laughs> actually you get more, uh, this my experience is you get kind of more emotional than just purely sensual experiences. So you get tremendously fond of people. You get a lot of love, affection, fondness, uh, tenderness of heart, and things like that. that first thing you feel, well, you know, what's going on? Uh, because you, f- you, don't, you, don't, you f- don't know quite how to handle it, how you're supposed to interpret it. Yeah. And then I just find it really, for myself, really helpful to contemplate things like mudita, which is the ability to just 
just appreciate the pleasant and the good. Doesn't mean you've got to grab it, but you say, Well, that's very nice, you know. That's that's the way that is. Let the mind experience pleasure, you know. Uh, and feel and contemplate it. This is pleasant feeling. Contemplate the feeling. And uh, in the body, so in the body you, you develop uh, qualities of pleasure in the body, such as uh, calm, the body feels soft and calm and steady, the, the nervous system feels relaxed and open. Um, and then you can handle all kinds of pleasant feelings uh, as they arise in terms of the senses or even in terms of the mind or in terms of the mind's uh, emotions and so forth, just feeling the effects in your body. And this is why the Buddha very much encouraged uh, people to develop samadhi. Samadhi gives you a, a frame of reference to pleasure where you deliberately develop pleasure in this mental mental psycho emotional somatic level of experience you know it's difficult to say it's bodily or mental it's because it's everything samadhi it covers everything and you just sit in that pleasure knowing how to handle it how to suffuse it how to breathe it how to soften it how to brighten it how to send it through your body how to send it out how to bring it back how to calm it down how to pick it up how to turn it towards that which is disagreeable. You know? So you really, instead of just being you know, waves of it rushing over, you pick it up almost as a, as a substance and you begin to work it and massage it and handle it. So pleasure is no longer some spontaneous, you know, off-the-cuff flash. It's something that you really know as a fundamental experience, as almost a texture of, of experience that you can deliberately bring up and manage and handle and steady yourself with it. This is what you do in, in your meditation in the body. And then actually when you do that, pleasure is neither a, a rare thing that you've got to grab hold of, nor something that comes from externally, nor something that you're mystified with, you know, or, or sort of um, made giddy by. It's just a fact of life, the pleasant and the unpleasant the painful the sense of the disagreeable then the mind can consider that and you know, recognize that so you, you begin to contemplate how there is the physical pain and there is what the mind makes of it is again is a very kind of fundamental contemplative teaching. Uh, you have two levels of pain. One is physical, one is more mental. And everybody, the Buddha's on down or up, depending how you want to look at it, experiences the physical. But the difference between the, the enlightened ones and the rest of us is that the, the enlightened ones don't have any, any mental suffering right. over that. No. As they only have, they say, they only have the one dart, not the two. <laughs> so you get the physical, but there's no resistance to that. There's no complaining about that. There's no tensing up about that. There's no, it's not fair about that. There's no panic about that, because the mind is developed. The mind understands this medium, understands this this experience, 
And it's more than just an intellectual understanding. The mind knows how to release that. So the body can't release pain, but the mind can. The mind can develop equanimity and patience and spaciousness, which doesn't tighten up and contract and flurry. The mind is developed, therefore pain is not uh, an obstacle. The body is developed, therefore pleasure is not an obstacle. And these are, in a way, you know, very helpful practices to bring, to help to, to bring into specific focus the path to that open, timeless, stateless uh, awareness of the Buddha, of the awakened, you know, which we get glimpses of, we realize is a potential, and then it's pushed, and suddenly, you, you know, you're in it, you're out, you're, you're doing something else, and wow, where was that? And then, oh, you come back again. How to actually, and really, the, the bits where you lose it, of course, are the most important bits to wake up to. You know, you don't want to just kind of, oh yeah, you know, I've got my three minutes of it, my five minutes sitting on my cushion. That's great, but it's really, it's the times when you lose it are the most important bits to, to develop the skills because you know, that's where the weight, the residues of your life are in the bits of your, of your losing it. That's the stuff you've got to clear. You know? So it's really this stuff of pain, pleasure, praise, blame, you know, losing, winning. That's the stuff you want to look at. <laughs> you don't want to be in some situation which, which, which we avoid that, you know. So it's almost like to be a state where everything's equal and fair and free. You know, we don't have to feel lesser or better. No, that's not going to wake you up. You want to feel somewhere where you feel like you're the crumb at the bottom of the line who's getting dumped on. Who's <laughs> not getting a good deal and feel that. Oh, yeah. Okay, what can I learn out of this? We like to be in a, somewhere where we didn't have any physical pain. You know, nobody got sick. We didn't have disease. You're not going to wake up like that. You know, what do you think this is about? This isn't some kind of something going wrong at the end of your life to other people. <laughs> this is like, this is chapter one, page one. Uh, this is what we want to actually square up to. Not, I can't meditate because I don't feel very well. Medi- you know, when you don't feel very well, that's the time to be applying it. Because that's where you, you really learn about release and patience and letting go and uh, being with your moods and feelings in, in an honest, awakened way. And these other techniques and systems, developing samadhi, recollections, are all there to help us, strengthen us, to handle this, these residues, this tremendous kind of momentum we have, this bias we have towards, um, you know, some state we could be at. But there isn't a state. There's a release from states. And it's really right like that. You, you look into, you know, you, how your system works. You have your thinking and your emotions and a kind of very fundamental, almost like a bodily sense, something that makes you feel you're here. You know, you're, that's becoming. That sense of, here I am, 
There's a kind of energy that's bound in that sense of here I am. That's the, that's the becoming, that's that. On top of that, you have certain emotional wrappings that bind and draw your mind into patterns of emotional behavior. On top of that, you've got various thoughts. You contemplate, you know, how those work. You know, your thinking mind can just run and catch you and run out, you know. Obvious first thing we experience in meditation is how the mind just runs away, thinking this, thinking that. And you deal with the topics, it's like grabbing a tar baby because they just think about thinking about not thinking. How many thoughts should I have before I stop thinking about not thinking? Is this thinking about not thinking the right kind of thinking or should I not be thinking about that thinking and so forth? (laughs) (laughs) So it just goes on, you know. There's something that's got to go different direction. You cut through the energy of that. that You pull the plug on the energy of thinking. And underneath that, you can feel the emotion of restlessness or hankering or ill will or something like this kind of turbulence. And you feel the energy of that 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 holds you. With your mindfulness and concentration, you drop through that by acknowledging it. And you come down to the kind of very basic level of this sense of being me, being here, being in something. Uh, that's, that's, that's the kind of shell of becoming. And the Buddha is someone who says he's broken that shell, broken through that shell. You know, they're no longer bound into, that, into a form of any kind. This is what you know, this gives you a sense of the map, if you like. You know, there's all kinds of tools we need to use, but to know the map, and it's to come through these forms, these gross forms and subtle forms, that, that have got a tremendous push in them, tremendous gravity, and they? tremendous magnetism to keep drawing you back again and again and again <laughs> to this form. That's what rebirth is. Yeah. And it's, uh, it seems so implacable, and yet, the Buddha's teaching is saying, this is what you can pierce. You can pierce through that. You can be liberated from that. And every time when we get the resources, we can witness those forms within us. The forms of our thinking minds, the forms of our emotions, the very form of self, the forming of meanness. And, you know, what the, how that's how that's biasing towards holding something, taking over something, retracting from something. And wherever it goes, goes forward, you check it. Goes back, you check it. Stand still, you check it. You check it, you check it. You don't let it catch you, get, carry you away. And this is our practice. So this is something that the Buddha has brought to perfection. And he says, you know, you have a whole path that's about doing that. It's an integrated path. It means how you speak, how, you get, how we get carried away in speaking, um, how we get carried away in our actions, our thoughts, our resolve. Um, all of this is given us systems to penetrate those, those, those tendencies. Yeah. For this, we should indeed be pleased and grateful and recognize this actually is a tremendous gift 
and uh, it's where we can live. We can live the Buddha's life, live the Buddhist life, and for this we should be truly grateful. So, offer this for your reflection.